This is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet. For this introductory episode, this first installment in a series of recordings I'm going to do for Looking Closer, I want to focus on the movie Blade Runner, that 1982 cult classic directed by Ridley Scott and based on the book by Philip K. Dick that was called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Perhaps you've seen this film. If you're like me, you've seen it more times than you can count. But if you're new to the movie Blade Runner, be informed that I am going to talk about the end of the movie. So there will be spoilers, and you might want to go see the movie and then come back and listen to this. I will avoid details about the outcome of the showdown uh, between the two central characters, the protagonist and the antagonist, so to speak, um, because I want some surprises for you when you see the film. But I'm particularly interested in a conversation that happens at the end of the film, and I'll be going into detail about that. Blade Runner the movie is quite a different experience than reading the book. Uh, The screenplay takes dramatic license to extremes. Uh, It was co-written by Hampton Fancher, a writer also responsible for a film called The Minus Man, which I somehow have never seen, and David Webb Peoples, who is a writer I'm very familiar with. He wrote my favorite Western, Clint Eastwood's film Unforgiven, as well as Terry Gilliam's dark, strange, sci-fi classic Twelve Monkeys, which inspired a TV series. But let's talk about Blade Runner. Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, is one of the most memorable villains, I think, in all of cinema. He is a replicant, that is to say, a cyborg in a future version of Los Angeles here on Earth. The replicants are robots that work for the good of humankind, Uh, But sometimes they get a little too smart for their own good, so to speak, and they rebel when they discover especially that they have expiration dates. They have been made in humankind's image, and perhaps they want to understand why they have been designed as machines that will eventually shut down uh, rather than living lives as human beings do with greater freedoms. They want to confront their makers about the harsh fact of that expiration date. Sort of like humankind in writing and in art and in prayer and in protest and in violence have lashed out against God and the reality of death. We lash out against each other all the time in insecurity and wanting more life like these replicants do. That's why this is a very philosophical science fiction film. But Roy Batty wants more life. And he is fighting against the policeman who has been sent after him, the special agent in law enforcement called a Blade Runner, played by Harrison Ford. And his name is Rick Deckard. He has been sent out to find these rebel replicants who are wreaking havoc in Los Angeles and retire them. That is to say, shoot them and shut them down, destroy them. So Roy, a replicant who has gone rogue, 
is finally battling against Rick Deckard in the film's fiery climax on top of a skyscraper. And that expiration date is coming up fast. It's been a bloody battle. They are bruised and exhausted. And I won't reveal exactly why there is a pause here in the fight. It's probably fair to say that nobody is really going to win this fight. But the words that are exchanged there, or really, they're not exchanged. (laughs) Roy starts talking. He knows he's running out of time. He's standing in the rain. The rain might, if we want to read it as poetry, represent the grief of Roy Batty as his, his final moments draw near. And he suddenly begins to speak in a way that seems uncharacteristic for a machine. He sounds like a broken man confiding secrets in a trusted friend. Or maybe he's making a last confession to a priest. What I think is interesting, though, is he doesn't focus on himself. A a lot of us in our final moments might feel some urge to um, voice our grievances against those who have wronged us or uh, frantically try to give instructions to someone. Or maybe we're moved to confess some wrong. But Roy instead focuses on memories. He wants to tell Rick Deckard what he has seen. And he speaks these very memorable lines about sensory memories that he carries with him here to the end. In those very intense moments, in the rain, he says these words. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched Sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. The rest of the movie Blade Runner is not like that. Uh, We've watched Rick Deckard, this police agent, intent on ending the quote-unquote lives of these replicants and moving through a very dark, uh, threatening world. Along the way, as he tries to shut down these machines, he begins to struggle with a sense of his own identity. Who is Rick Deckard? What makes him, a human being, any different from these machines he's trying to retire? What is the difference between we, who are, according to some, made in the image of God, and the devices who are made in our image. And is Rick Deckard really who he thinks he is? He begins to doubt assumptions he's had his entire life, and he even begins to doubt the nature of his own memories. In this very strange and mysterious place, these two combatants are facing one another and suddenly reflecting on the mystery of these images they carry with them, these memories. Roy is suddenly very interested in the quality of beauty in these moments that he cherishes and that he is about to lose, and he feels compelled to share them. It's worth noting that uh, it's hard to, hard to escape uh, religious implications in, in this imagery because Roy Batty, the 
the son of the technological god Tyrell, over the course of the fight has ended up with pierced hands, nails driven through his hands. Uh, so he has this sort of uh, stigmata or literal marks of a crucifixion. And he is standing there holding a dove in his hand. Um, it would be easy to make too much of this imagery, perhaps, uh, or maybe to consider that the film is a bit heavy-handed here. I don't know. Critics have argued about that over the years. But it's as if he has stopped fighting, and in his final moments, his soul begins to sing with these images that he's been carrying with them, and, and he wants to make something of them. He wants to pass them on. And with that line about tears in rain, he's reaching beyond the literal circumstances for metaphors to try to express the value of these images he's carrying and what it will be like to have them washed away as he reaches his expiration date. And I can relate to the villain in this moment. I might say that's because I'm recording this in something like a bunker. Uh, the recording studio I'm, I'm using right now is actually an empty office suite underneath a dentist's office. So if you hear any strange background noise, that's, that's coming from upstairs. But it feels kind of like I'm hiding in a bunker during a pandemic. And yes, I am recording this uh, right in the middle uh, well, at least we hope it's the middle and that we're going to come out the other side here soon, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there seems to be death and rumors of death all around me, the possibility of it everywhere. I am not dying, to the best of my knowledge, and I want you to know that I am not recording this with some secret or some urgency, that I feel like this might be my, my, my last broadcast, nothing like that. But there is a sense of urgency in the air. Most of us are feeling somewhat insecure as we have to wear masks in order to go out into the world now. The world of Blade Runner is a very dark and threatening world with strange and ominous clouds filling the air and filling the streets and blazes of fire shooting up from the buildings of downtown Los Angeles. It's not a future I want to live in. I kind of feel that cloud of oppression these days and I am feeling a strange compulsion to share with you things that I have seen. As Brian Ferry once sang, there is this sense that there is more than this and that we need metaphors and creative language in order to, in order to translate the mysterious experiences that we have had with beauty. When I slow down and attend to beauty, whether that is a, a sunset at Richmond Beach down the road from my house, or the glory of the uh, of, of New Mexico at on a highway at dusk. I want to write poems, I want to write stories, I want to take pictures to preserve the mysterious thrill of those experiences. I am sort of caught up out of myself and my immediate concerns about safety, and I see something larger. Perhaps Roy Batty, in recalling these images, is reaching for a sense of mystery, something beyond what seems to be the harsh reality of the moment, which is that he is going to die. He, he is going to reach his expiration date. And suddenly he's drawn to these moments of beauty that suggest maybe there is more at work in the world, more in heaven and earth, than we have dreamt of in our philosophy.
if I may borrow some words from Shakespeare. Perhaps in those rumors of glory, there is an inkling of hope that there is more than this, more than life that ends at an expiration date. I feel compelled to bear witness about the marvels I have experienced in the world of the arts, in the world of nature, in the world of human community, <laughs> and I want to bear witness while I still have time. My high school English teacher once wrote, art is what happens when a person encounters mystery and feels compelled to make something of it. We do this all the time. My film reviews are an attempt to make something of these very mysterious and moving encounters I've had in the arts. Art itself is an attempt to make something of experiences the artist has had, which is probably why audience have, audiences have such profound uh, perspectives on those works of art that are different than the artist himself or herself would have had about what that work of art means. Alfred Stieglitz took a series of photographs of clouds that he called equivalents. Have you ever tried to take a picture of a sunset or of a particularly magnificent cloud and you look at the photograph and you go, that's not it at all. It's really hard to capture what we experience when we are caught up in the presence of beauty. The equivalents, these photographs were manipulated in some ways, framed in certain ways, the contrast highlighted in certain ways, because Stieglitz wanted to communicate the emotional experience of looking at that particular cloud. He wanted us to feel what he had felt. And so those images are composed carefully so that he can pass along some of that. Art is what happens when a person encounters mystery and feels compelled to make something of it. In his final moments, Roy Batty recalls these images and feels compelled to put them into words creatively in order to pass them on so someone else can feel what he has felt, achieving a kind of human intimacy. Perhaps it's a reaction to loneliness, a desire to connect the way we should be connecting, the way we are meant to connect in this fleeting life. And so let me begin this series with a few words about myself. Here is the information. My name is Jeffrey Overstreet. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, the child of two teachers, Lois and Larry Overstreet. I am a novelist. I have written four fantasy novels that are all one series, beginning with a book called Aurelia's Colors. I have written a memoir of my time as a moviegoer and a film critic. That's called Through a Screen Darkly. I am an assistant professor of English and writing at Seattle Pacific University. At least at the time of this recording, all of these details are true. I'm also the guy responsible for this big mess of a website called Looking Closer, which has almost 20 years of posts, many of them frivolous, many of them my attempts to put into words creatively my experience of mystery and beauty in the world of the arts. I am married to a poet named Anne, 
who is constantly trying to capture in words the experiences that she has in the presence of beauty in the world. And I am brother to a musician named Jason, who tries to capture in music uh, expressions of his faith. It is also true, and this may be unconventional to start telling you things like this, but I am also incomplete, deeply flawed, prone to acting in selfish ways, and thus I am compelled by a desire to be healed and whole and to become a better version of myself. And strangely, I feel that when I focus on beauty, I am being strengthened, I am being repaired, I am being improved, almost as if the landscapes I'm looking at or the poetry that I am paying attention to is tuning up the instruments within me. I am attracted to beauty because I sense there is meaning there and it restores in me a sense that I am connected to something greater than myself. And that helps me overcome my insecurities. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, we read, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Looking closer is, for me, an attempt to see clearly, to strengthen my eyes, and then translate for you the good that I see. And, I hope for you, it is a chance to think about your own attentiveness to the world around you and to the arts, so that our whole bodies will be full of light. This is hard work for me because it runs contrary to much of what I was taught as a child. I grew up in a very particular Christian community a very conservative Christian community where there were very loving people and where I was taught wonderful things and where the faith that I hold to today was introduced to me. But it's also true that in a kind of contrary way to all of these wonderful things I was taught, the culture in which I grew up was very fearful. My fellow Christians spoke of the world as a place to be afraid of, a dangerous place full of toxic influences, and that I should seek to withdraw from the world and keep myself safe from cultural differences around me, and especially, strangely, in the world of the arts, which seemed particularly threatening to them. I thought this seemed incongruous with the example of Jesus himself, who is courageously engaging with the world around him, pursuing those who are different from him, inviting these fishermen to become disciples, to become courageous, and to fear not. Perhaps that is the most commonly repeated exhortation throughout the scriptures. Fear not. Be courageous. Go out into the world knowing that you are part of something greater than yourself that will enable you to engage with the world around you and the culture around you, not only so that you can share what you have seen that has tuned you up and changed you and made you a better person, but also so that you can see and recognize the beauty in the world around you and go on being tuned up and transformed by revelation. Because God doesn't just work in the church. You can find beauty in the world all around you, 
And where you find beauty and where you find truth, that is where God is at work. I want my eyes to be clear so that my body will be filled with light so that I am more and more illuminated in all senses of the word and so that I become luminous so that others can be illuminated by the glory that I have witnessed. Bringing it back to Blade Runner, in that strange and tense moment on the skyscraper in the rain, in the middle of the night, engulfed in strange clouds, this killing machine testifies to a man with a gun in his hand that he has seen beautiful things. And he begins to testify. What a strange compulsion. What a mysterious reaction to the idea that you are running out of time. I have a friend named John Medina who is a remarkable brain scientist. And in his writing about the relationship between the human brain and architecture, he talks about the research of an innovative thinker named Jay Appleton. Jay Appleton uh, introduced to us the concept of prospect refuge spaces. Let me explain what that is. Prospect refuge spaces, uh, that idea is based on evidence that we prefer environments in which we can comfortably and easily study our surroundings with the assurance that we can easily withdraw into safety and hiding. This makes a lot of sense to me. I used to work at a, in higher education marketing and I had a, a little office of my own and I was very, very creative when I worked in that office because I felt safe. And yet I had this big window in front of me that looked out on the, the college campus and there was this beautiful garden in front of me and a tower and I could see the, the blue skies and the clouds washing across Seattle. I could see floods of students uh, pouring out of the buildings when classes were over and moving across the campus. And I was so stimulated by these, uh, these dramatic images and yet I was also in the safety of my office. It was, it, for, a, for a time, it was, it was a place of perfect creativity. Then the office was redesigned as an open workspace, and I found my desk in a corner way in the back of the office, and I was facing a wall. I felt exposed because there was so much activity around me of other people working. I could feel the eyes of others on me while I worked, and I had no vantage point. I had lost that prospect refuge balance. I felt vulnerable. I did not have the intellectual stimulation of the beauty beyond the window, and my creativity diminished dramatically. So I really buy this idea that we are, we are creatures that are meant to live in this place where we can look out at things and study things and learn and then withdraw into safety. But we can't live our whole lives there. In learning about what is out there, Hopefully, we are gaining courage to go out there and become more effective and to increase that space. And, and what I think faith does for us is that when we encounter beauty and see that we are a part of something greater than ourselves, then the, those threats to us are not so threatening. <laughs> we can become more courageous to go out and make a difference in the world, even at great costs to ourselves, because we have learned in that space of safety and prospect that there is something much greater going on in the cosmos than, than just our own safety and comfort. This preference 
writes John Medina, comes right out of Eastern Africa, a terrain combining flat open spaces with mountainous structures. We needed prospect to look for predators, but we needed refuge in case we found one. This tension between the necessity for broad openness and tight enclosure has not changed simply because we acquired a bit of civilization. That's John Medina. I am thinking about this in relationship to my experience yesterday on a ferry boat where I was standing at the railing at the front of the boat looking out at the, the water where I would drown if I fell in, uh, the, the rocks along the coast, the island that we were approaching, and I was unselfconscious almost. I was caught up out of myself, enjoying the sensations of the wind and the warmth of the sunshine and the beauty of the island and the beauty of the water. I wasn't worried about the dangers all around me because I could so easily retreat into the ferry boat if I needed to. And then we heard a voice over the loudspeakers informing us that a humpback whale was just off the starboard side of the boat. And we all rushed to that corner just in time to see it disappearing into the water. And let me tell you, the intensity of my attention doubled in those moments because we were suddenly aware that there was this huge living mystery right there concealed by the waves. And it made me feel that thrill of being close to danger, but also being fairly confident that I was safe. But I'm also thinking about this concept in relationship to my seat in a movie theater. With my ticket to travel via cinema, I can travel around the world. I can travel into societies that speak different languages and live by different laws. I can even travel back in time in some ways or into speculative futures like the one in Blade Runner. These are situations that would be very dangerous if I was trying to do them in real life. But the prospect refuge concept is alive in the world of the arts because we are in the safety of our living room couch or our movie theater seat or our symphony hall seat. And we are able to entertain these wild ideas and live vicariously through the world of the imagination. I can even venture safely into scenes where other characters are in danger. Watching Terrence Malick's film, The Thin Red Line, I am thrown into the violence and the atrocities of the Battle of Guadalcanal, where men are acting desperately to stay alive in a war that makes no sense. But I am also safe enough that I can observe and reflect on that chaos, on the relationship of human activity to the environment in which they are wreaking such bloody havoc, on the beauty of the enemies they are fighting, the people who are being harmed and traumatized by the violence. And, and I say enemies with quotation marks around that because these children who are being traumatized by the war, certainly they are not enemies. By looking closely at the war, I see the insanity, the absurdity of the war, and it changes my heart and mind about the nature of war in the world, and it makes me want to seek other solutions to problems. The prospect, refuge, reality of engaging the arts can improve and transform my mind and my heart. We should be careful not to become lazy, only living in spaces that give us this safe distance vantage point. The gospel, the gospel that I was taught in the same community that taught me to be afraid of the world is a gospel of action, of putting aside fear and getting involved in the work of love. This is a danger I struggle with. As a reader and a writer, 
It is easy for me to spend most of my days at a critical distance from relationships, from risk, from service, and to dwell on more cerebral activities. Art is best understood as a path into a richer and more meaningful life of action. Art is not life itself. If we live our lives obsessed with movies, then the world outside is missing what the wisdom that we can gain from those films will enable us to do with that experience. Otherwise, all of these memories of movies, of music, of literature might be lost in time, like tears in rain. Recently, I saw a video that served as a sort of introduction to a Christian movie. It was a presentation by a popular Christian filmmaker, and he was presenting a manifesto for Christians in the cinematic arts. He sounded like he wanted to start a movement. He began by describing what he called, and I quote, the biggest problem we face today. He wasn't talking about poverty. He wasn't talking about prejudice. He wasn't talking about a threat to democracy or climate change or the threat of nuclear holocaust. No, it was, he claimed with solemn conviction, a crisis of young people leaving their evangelical churches. That, he said, is the biggest problem we face today. I was skeptical, uh, but then he said he knew the primary reason for this mass exodus from churches, and so I was paying attention again. Okay, why are, why are young people leaving churches? And he said this, the cause of young people leaving church is that entertainment is so readily available to them. Why would they stay in church when their desire to be entertained can be so easily satisfied elsewhere? Thus, he said, young people need to immerse themselves in proper entertainment. When they immerse themselves in entertainment that exposes them to dangerous worldviews and offensive content, they stray from where they need to be. So, he declared, we must seize the resources available to us and create entertainment that will give us a safe and exciting alternative to the world of the arts that exists today around us. I want three things when I consume entertainment properly, he said. And the screen lit up with his priorities printed out in all caps. And here they are. First, he said, I want to see my worldview represented. Christian moviegoers, he asserted, want movies that show them the world through their own perspective. This, he implied, should be our priority. Secondly, he said, I don't want to be offended. Christians who consume movies, he said, want to avoid anything that runs contrary to their moral sensibilities, anything that will upset them, anything that might lead them into temptation. I don't want to have to cover my eyes or ears, he said, or to cover my children's eyes or ears. Okay, first, he wants to see his worldview represented. Second, he doesn't want to be offended. Third, he said, I want to be entertained. Christians who go to the movies, he said, want to be entertained. As opposed to what? Being bored? That seems extremely subjective. I don't know about you, but I have a feeling that you and I are entertained by different things. So if I'm not misreading this 
passionate culture warrior, I suspect that he means that Christians want things to be easy for them. We don't want trouble. We don't want challenge. We don't want the discomfort of having to see the world through the eyes of people different than us. This runs contrary to the example of Jesus that I understand when I read the scriptures. I'm reminded of what that great Presbyterian minister, Frederick Beekner, wrote. You can find this in his book, Whistling in the Dark. He writes, And when Jesus comes along saying that the greatest commandment of all is to love God and to love your neighbor, he is asking us to pay attention. If we are to love God, we must first stop Look and listen for him in what is happening around us and inside us. If we are to love our neighbors, before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors. With our imagination as well as our eyes, that is to say, like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Here it is love that is the frame we see them in. I can't help but think about Roy Batty at the end of Blade Runner. This is the villain. This is the killing machine. We have been taught over the course of movie to be afraid of this monster. And yet, in this final scene, Roy Batty wants to testify to us. And if we listen, we will find that he is fighting for his life because he is in love with life. He's seen things we wouldn't believe, and he wants to tell us about them. That's what's most valuable to him. That's what he's carrying, these memories, like treasure. And if we pay attention, we might find that we can relate to him, that we might have a conversation with him, that we might see it as a tragedy as well, that there is this expiration date. Maybe we might even be moved to fight for him to have more life and a second chance. Now, I realize that by asking you to engage with a film like Blade Runner, this dark, violent, R-rated movie, I am basically asking all of us to violate those three standards that I mentioned earlier, those standards set up by the Christian filmmaker who was trying to connect with us on what we believe about engaging with the world outside of us. He said, we want to see our own worldview represented. That is not true for me when I go out the door in the morning. I want to engage the world as it is. I want to love my neighbors, and in order to love them, I need to listen to them. In the world of the arts, that means paying attention to other storytellers, other image makers, and then thinking about the way they see the world and what it reveals. Asking, is it true? Is it beautiful? Is this uh, of God? Or is it a lie? That practice is good for me. It's good for all of us. It's humbling. And besides, if we are going to hope to be listened to and loved by our neighbors, if we want them to understand the way we see the world, We had better be respectful about their own visions, their own creative expressions. If I want to avoid being offended, not only am I not going to leave the house in the morning because the world is full of offensive things, and if I'm going to love my neighbors, believe me, I am going to run up against a lot of those offensive characteristics. But it's also true that if I'm being honest about my own heart, my own heart is filled with offensive things. 
And I need to be able to face those things and engage them and think about them and talk about them and work on them. Now, that third point about just wanting to be entertained. Most of the Christians I know want more than to be entertained. I mean, I work in a university setting, so maybe I'm spoiled this way, but I'm surrounded by people who want to think about what they see, what they hear, what they read. They want to, as the scriptures tell us to, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So I recommend engaging the arts in all kinds of ways, in ways that make you uncomfortable, but in ways that will introduce to you other ways of thinking about and looking at the world, other experiences, other questions, other mysteries that will not only train us in engaging with our neighbors who have very different understandings of the world, it will also open us to new discoveries, to new things that God wants to show us. And maybe he wants to show us these things through our neighbors, even those neighbors who don't believe in him. I can say with deep conviction that I have learned more about God. I have encountered the truth more fully. I have been immersed in beauty, more magnificent in art created by people who do not identify as Christians than I have by art created by professing Christians. That is not to criticize my fellow Christians in the arts. That's just to say my faith is so much stronger for the world I have seen, the worlds I have seen in the creativity of all kinds of people from all periods of history around the world. My syllabus for my film classes basically presents the opposite vision from that particular Christian filmmakers. I want them to seek out experiences of imaginations beyond their own, different than their own, even discomforting visions. I want them to bravely engage visions that might be unsettling and discomforting. I want them to seek not just entertainment, although there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but I want them to go farther. I want them to reach for more. I want them to seek revelation. I see this so often in the world of the arts, especially in the movies, these moments when characters stop and reflect on something beautiful and it changes them, it awakens them, it, it tunes the instruments inside of them. In the movie Babette's Feast, Babette finds out she's won the lottery and she walks down to the edge of the water for a long time and looks out at the light and the water. We don't know what's going on in her mind but she suddenly turns around, resolved to do something good with that fortune. In the movie The Insider, Jeffrey Wigand is uh, a whistleblower against the crimes of Big Tobacco, and his life has been threatened by Big Tobacco executives. Even his family's lives have been threatened. They don't want him to tell the truth about their illegal business practices. He goes out, he takes a moment, he looks into the light, and then he turns and goes into the courthouse. He has seen something in beauty, in mystery, in the light, that gives him the courage to act, to risk, 
to go out and put his life on the line for the sake of others, that feels to me like gospel. If you have read much of my writing or heard me speak about movies, you know I'm not going to wrap this up without mentioning The Muppets. But I love that moment at the beginning of the Muppet movie when Kermit the Frog is playing the banjo in the swamp and he's looking up at the sky and he's singing about the glory of rainbows. And the lyrics of that song show that as he is paying attention to the beauty around him, as he is looking closely with clear eyes, he is filled with light and a longing, a longing to do something, to make something of it. And when someone comes along and suggests that he could make millions of people happy if he were to go and sing and share his songs with the world, he does. He has the courage to leave the safety of his home and go out into the world and make a difference because he knows that the beauty of those rainbows has illuminated him and he has something to share. The great Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in his 1978 Nobel Lecture on Literature these words about the arts. The task of the artist is to sense more keenly than others the harmony of the world, the beauty and the outrage of what man has done to it, and poignantly to let people know. Art warms even an icy and depressed heart, opening it to lofty personal experience. By means of art, we are sometimes sent dimly, briefly, revelations unattainable by reason. Like that little mirror in the fairy tales, look into it and you will see not yourself, but for a moment that which passes understanding, a realm to which no man can ride or fly and for which the soul begins to ache. I have to go back to that song that Kermit is singing. I've heard it too many times to ignore it. It's something that I'm supposed to be. Someday we'll find it. When we encounter beauty, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are encouraged, that is to say, we are given courage. We need to share what we have seen. We need to craft equivalents. We need to, with Roy Batty, reach for words to share the things we have seen that others cannot believe. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? Have you ever watched a meteor shower? The theologian N.T. Wright says that truth is something that happens when genuinely humble people pause long enough before their subject of study to hear and see what is truly going on, rather than inflicting their own theories on it. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. I've seen a school of tiny black fish with these long ribbon-like tails playing in the clear water of Salt Creek just outside of Roswell, New Mexico, in the shadow of red cedar, red cedar that also shades the bright white 
bones of a fox who seems posed as if he might leap back to life. And you know, my wife Anne was there with me to see these things, and she wrote poems about them. She made something of the encounter. On another rural street in New Mexico, after a monsoon, there were these puddles glistening on the dark road. And I noticed as I was driving that there were these dark patches on the road next to the puddles, and I pulled the car over and got out to look. Tarantulas were coming out of hiding all around me and wandering onto the road in large numbers like like cattle. They were drawn to these puddles because they were thirsty. We wandered around and watched them. They paid no attention to us. They just drank from the puddles. On another long New Mexico highway at dusk, in the rosy light of a harvest moon that sprang up over the mountains, I watched an enormous horned bull on one side of the highway behind some barbed wire, and he was bellowing to a herd behind the fence on the other side of the highway, with this primal longing as we drove past him. There was something strange and magical about that scene. And, of course, my wife Anne wrote a magnificent poem about it that is about so much more than what we saw. I've seen in Terrence Malick's movie, The Tree of Life, a recreation of creation itself achieved through the eye of a camera focused on milk clouding into pools of chemicals in a Petri dish. And yet when I saw these things on the big screen, I saw the formation of the cosmos. Anne and I watched a whale swim into Puget Sound toward downtown Seattle under red sunset clouds on the 4th of July. And then, after we could hear the fireworks beginning booming in the distance, we saw the whale hurrying back out to sea, confused and unsettled by these vibrations it was feeling. I've seen Bill Walton, yeah, that former NBA basketball player, throw a basketball straight up into the air at the moment that his team, the underdog Portland Trailblazers, won the NBA championship in 1977, and the crowd flooded the court in celebration. I could fill books with these things. The tragedy is that Roy Batty thinks that all of these things ultimately are lost when he reaches his expiration date. He wants to share. But is this a tragedy? This villain, this monster, this killing machine is shutting down. But he seems suddenly more than a machine. He is capable of perceiving and participating in something greater than himself. I would go so far as to suggest that Roy Batty in that moment is as human as the man sitting across from him who has been sent to shut him down. He is no longer just a puppet. Roy is a real boy. In this process of seeing, paying attention, and testifying of things greater than ourselves, that is where I feel most alive, most encouraged, most courageous, ready to fear not and to go out and make a difference in the world despite the risks. That is why on this website for almost 20 years and in the days to come, I invite you to come along with me and look closer 
to cultivate empathy and justice, to encourage mercy, to sustain hope in a spirit of love, attentiveness, gratitude, and humility. I'll leave you with this. In that church where I grew up, where I was taught to fear the world and to withdraw and remain in safety, I discovered that I was not safe there, that there were plenty of dangers there as well. But I also learned this song that we would sing together on Sunday mornings. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. All right, I'm not a singer, but notice when I look out in awesome wonder and consider all the worlds thy hands have made, then sings my soul. Don't you want a soul that sings? Then open your eyes, look closely, and be filled with light. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet. You can reach me at Gmail. My address is joverstreet or joverstreet at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Overstreet. And I would love to hear from you about what you are seeing in the world, in nature, in art. This is just the beginning.